How do you get through tough times? Well, it has been so difficult for all of us. Hello, it's Rob Moore here. Welcome to The Disruptive Entrepreneur. And this is a very exciting moment. Um, I know it doesn't look like it, but I love fashion. And uh, to be sat here with the founder of Mulberry himself, Roger Saul. Um, look, we are so privileged and blessed. Uh, and Roger actually spoke at one of our summits and has kindly uh, done this interview for the Disruptive Entrepreneur podcast. Um, so, Roger, first, off, I want to say thank you so much for one, the amazing work you've done over the decades, but two, for um, being our guest and doing this interview. Rob, I'm, it's a great pleasure to be with you. I enjoyed talking last time and look forward to hearing what you're going to thrust at me this time. Well, I'll start taking it nice and easy because um, I guess a lot of people don't know how Mulberry was founded, the origin of Mulberry, because obviously it's an iconic brand which is left and leaving a vast legacy and it's cost many husbands like me many thousands of pounds, I can tell you, Roger. So I'd love to get the origin story of Mulberry. I was a schoolboy in the late 60s. Um, fashion then was very, very exciting, but it was sort of formative. The 70s were where everything changed and fashion really became what we know today, I would say. And so just coming to that era, I remember Sergeant Pepper, the Beatles, and they were all wearing military uniforms. And I started collecting Victorian military uniforms and that passion for high quality craftsmanship, but absolute peacock designs of you know bright red uniforms, how they didn't get shot all the time. God only knows, but they did, I guess. Then they changed to khaki. But that was a time that was so exciting. I was just finishing school, heading for college in London. I'd managed to get a scholarship to study at Westminster College in London, which was, I won't say a complete flute, but I certainly hadn't concentrated too hard on the work side as opposed to the sports side of my life. And so going up to London with this scholarship, I was due to join a company called Charrington Gardner Lockett, which made solid fuel and were probably based in Surbiton. And having got to London, the vibrancy of the fashion and the music scene was such, I was thinking, no, I don't want to become an under-manager in Surbiton at the age of 30. What could I do? And one of my mates was working in a boutique um, owned by John Michael, who was one of the fashion gurus at the time. And he said, uh, Rog, you really ought to get into the boutique. And uh, you're not going to believe this, but in those days, the sort of the dream job was to become a boutique manager that was the sort of the sexy job if you could get it. So that was my aim, <laughs> so to say. And so I went to John Michael and said, look, could I be your business studies management trainee? Because I was at Westminster College. And he said, well, what's one of those? And I tried to explain to him. He said, well, <clears throat> come along. So I made the coffee for him. I cleaned out the stationary cupboards. And then job number three was buying accessories for him. So I was in one of his boutiques in Oxford Street buying belts off the street from hippies, making a huge markup of several hundred percent, thinking, wow, this is crazy. I could do better than this. So I went to my father, who was working at Clark Shoes, a senior manager there, and said, Dad, Dad, where can I get some leather? And he said, well, go down to Borough, Borough Road, which was then the sort of whole leather centre in London. And there I found some amazing saddle skins. And then I found some snake skins, coloured snake skins. And I thought, this is incredible. And there was a big fashion for velvet chokers with cameos on, which was with the miniskirt of the time. We're talking about 1970, Mary Quant period. 
And I thought I could do snakeskin chokers. So I designed a very simple snakeskin band, found out how to stitch and turn it with my girlfriend at the time with a little singer sewing machine on the kitchen table um, and went out to shops like Bieber and sold them with a little butterfly on the snakeskin choker. And that was literally the beginning of me making and designing some very rough saddle skin belts with brass buckles and selling them to people like Bieber. And that was before I started Mulberry. I then went to my dad and said, Dad, could you back me? I think I could do this fashion brand and making belts and accessories. And he said, well, I can't because I'm working for Clarks. But why don't we make your mother a sleeping partner? And that was literally the beginning. So in 1971, they gave me 500 pounds for my 21st birthday. And off we went. Wow. And could you put us in the picture now, Roger? Can you give us a, a feel for the size and the impact of Mulberry? Maybe the countries that it's in, the turnover, the volume of units that it makes, just so everyone really knows how it's grown. Well, you're talking about, what, 1971? We're talking about 50 years. So as you know, I came out of Mulberry in 2004, so 17 years ago. So I couldn't begin to tell you what it does today. What I could tell you a little bit about would be the journey we went through to get to mm. where it is today. So um, the first thing in those days, you've got to remember, I was designing, I was making. We employed our first sort of sample stitcher who my dad's factory employed a thousand people making 60,000 pairs of shoes a week. So I could borrow the sort of stitch and they'd come and moonlight and stitch for me at home at night. Um, and so we made our first belts, our first accessories. Belts were the handbag of today. So they were the big thing and they changed shape every season, color, texture, shape, and where they were on the waist or the hips. So all was very, very exciting. And everything had to change massively through the 70s. So every season, if you hadn't changed completely your style and your look, you were gone. So that meant 20 seasons through the 70s. So I went out and quickly learned that to design and sell, Britain was very much a sort of fast, very exciting fashion, whereas Europe was a bit more mature. The quality was much better. Everything lasted much longer and was far, I don't know, mature is probably the best way to describe it, but, but cooler somehow for me. So I orientated to buying my leathers, my buckles in Paris and in Italy, which meant I was there a lot of the time. I then went into the boutiques there and the shops and started when I was doing my buying trips, I'd take my samples with me and sell. So I was trading in Europe from the very beginning. And I almost looked at fashion from a European perspective rather than a British one. And I could feel, and I started designing for people like Kenzo, um, all of the great French fashion brands. So I probably had about a portfolio of at least a dozen of the top European designers. And designing for them, I was seeing what they were doing six months before it hit the catwalk. And I was designing around their materials, their colors, their shapes, their shoulders, and everything else. So for me, it was a dream as a designer. As an accessory designer, I could nip in and I could just know what the next season's color palettes were going to be. And also my customers, my European boutique customers would say, hang on, didn't you design Christine Ojar's accessories? I'm sure seen something similar in the catwalk there. So my apprenticeship was designing as Mulberry, as Roger Saul, for those European and American designers, people like Ralph Lauren and so on. So we shot through the 70s, designing, manufacturing, wholesaling, no shops in those days. It was just purely selling to the boutiques or the Harrods or the Bloomingdale's. 
We opened up offices around the world or agents selling for us on commission. And by the end of the 70s, we were 80% export. Um, yeah, so by the end of the 70s, we got the Queen's Award for export, um, had, I think, probably 50% of our business going to America. Um, I was traveling over to America at least four times a year, Paris four times a year, and so on and so on. So very, very exciting times. We built the manufacturing at the same time. So the whole thing was moving like this. We somehow financed it because my mother was absolutely religious in we gave 5% seven-day payment terms, and she was on that phone. And if they hadn't paid up, and because we were a relatively small account as accessories rather than dresses, everybody thought, well, I'll pay that £1,000 to Mulberry. I'll delay my dress bill <laughs> a little bit longer. So we were able to cash flow ourselves through. So you've got to imagine all of these things are going on from designing to manufacturing, keeping the quality levels, and really building the brand, working with these other designers. And then by 1980, we had that first world recession. And bang, overnight, the American market, the pound dollar did this. I think it was, it went up to about $220 to the pound and down to 140. It was a complete, so suddenly our prices went up by 40, 50% in America. All the European designers, my colleagues I was working with, we all used to travel as a, a almost like a fashion circus to Los Angeles, New York. We all lost our business completely in the States. The states then moved to Hong Kong, the Far East, sourced more from there because that was favorable on the dollar, but we all were wiped out. So I think we went into 1979-80 recession with a turnover of about one and a half million pounds then. It must be 10 million at least today. And it was taken down to 700,000 in a year. And wow. that was crippling. None of us had experienced wow. it before. It was like one of those sort of housing recessions you know you bought your house and it's now worth half the value it was a year ago so very tough to handle we had to make our first redundancies um you know very loyal somerset team down here working for us it was really tough um but somehow we clawed our way through it and all of us as designers and brands and really brands didn't mean awfully much then it was more about your design ability and whether you were there the next season or the last season so we look back at what we had done best and Probably the most exciting collection we'd done was in about 1975-76. I'd done a collection based around English hunting, shooting, fishing. And I was literally chasing my wife-to-be around the country. I was lucky enough to have started collecting my cars then on a Mercedes 300 SL. And I would charge around the country where she was doing agricultural shows and she was modeling on the catwalk for one of the top magazines at that time. So I'd head to there and there and there. And time on my hands between the shows, I'd wander around the stands. And for the first time, I saw saddlery and hunting, shooting, fishing products looking amazing. And we couldn't make those in our factory because we were much more softer leathers and so on. I thought this could be a real style. So at the same time, I had just had the idea to take old army shirts, um, war department for the use of, no collar, placket here, long tails you tucked into your trousers. And the war department was selling off, war department was what it was then called, were selling off tens of thousands of them from the bases around the UK as they closed them down. And so I was buying, competing with the Nigerian army at auctions to buy a thousand shirts here and a thousand shirts there. And I designed this little blouson with a little leather collar, zip down the front, taking the basic army shirt, 
taking off the long tails, blues on pull at the bottom. And this little almost shirt collared but loose shaped little jacket became the fashion item around the world. And that was the first time we'd actually been able to put together a look that you could say, okay, these accessories with hunting bags, fishing bags, saddlery big belts, double belts, that became the fashion model around this little blouson. And we sold it to Bendel's in the States, to Japan and everywhere. And that really took Mulberry off as a brand. And so looking in 1980, talking to all of my key customers around the world, we were all going, well, what are we going to do next? What's fashion going to do? And they said, look, Roger, that collection you did, 75, 76, that was the one that took you off. You must do that again. But you can't get backwards, you know. So what we did was we took that element of Britishness and used that then as the focus for the brand, but then said, okay, well, if we could use that element of Britishness, that now means we can use anything to do with British. So we could go to colonial India and take inspiration from the cavalry uniforms there. We could go to Hemingway being in Florida and his own particular Britishness there. And so really what I tried to do there and after was take elements of, could be the 50s, could be whatever it was, take that inspiration from Grace Kelly frock dresses from the 50s to whatever it might be, where there was some form of English attachment and use that through the seasons. Uh, and we then started doing Ready Wear in 1980, did a collection in, in London, in the Cafe Real. Um, and Mulberry then came together as a brand as opposed to great products. So we then hurtled through the 80s. But how did we sustain that? Well, the first thing we realized was that We'd always done these amazing exhibition stands in Paris or wherever we were around the world. And we decided to take that sort of exhibition stand presentation that we'd used um, in that collection in 75. We'd used wooden gym bars and director's chairs with canvas seats. And we'd cut off the legs off pine coffee tables. So it was all very cool and cream and wood and simple and jute and linen. And that influence we again brought back into the collection and we said, OK, well, we could then do a corner perhaps in Harrods or Harvey Nichols, Liberties, Bloomingdale's. And so we created this corner concept around that gym bar director's chair feeling and put it in as the first time anybody had ever done it was a concession within a department store on the fashion floor and the accessory floor. And then we put the staff in, we put the stock in. And we said, look, we'll run this little business for you and we'll pay you a commission. And that that was game changing. If you now look at it, that's the basis of so much of fashion and retail. Mm. Then we took that idea and said, OK, why couldn't we do it in a shop? And we opened a tiny boutique in Place de Victoire, um, which was the center of fashion in those days for the world. All the buyers would come in twice a year to an exhibition called Pret-a-Porter. And there they'd all go to Place de Victoire, center of Paris, and all the top designer brands were there. And I had this tiny little shop, which was no bigger than the conservatory behind me. And literally, we did unbelievable business. And one of the key products we had then was I designed, you'll probably remember the Mulberry Filofax, which was a little leather diary ring binder. You could change the diary each year. And I'd found that in the late 70s, um, which had been first invented in about 1900, I think. And the little lady who still owned it, um, I approached her and said, look, could I make leather binders for it? And could you sell me the insides? And she said, yeah, sure. So I have this diary system, ring, ring folder diary system. And then somebody bought it and suddenly told me, you can't have the diary next year. 
So I got these leather folders and everybody around the world from the Armani buyers, whatever, all had this product and they would expect to buy their diary on the 1st of January or late December for the next year. And I couldn't supply it. And this guy whose name will remain nameless said, and I'm not going to supply you for America unless you give up the rights to America. So I was going through this nightmare. I thought, I can't do this. I'm going to have to design my own one. So I took everything that was wrong with it, increased the size to A5 and made the Mulberry Planner. And there we were a year or two later selling them piles at God knows what they cost then, let's say 200 pounds off the floor high 200 pounds, 200 pounds, 200 pounds. All these international buyers came through. And that, again, became like an icon product for us. And I think that ability, you can always stay, you should never stay right at the fashion front all the time. You can expect to have a collection that's going to lead, but you then need to be ready to step into the number two or three or five position and stay there, sustain your turnover in your business, but not expect to be right at the front in your red, yellow, whatever you are. Now, product like the Mulberry Planner gave us the ability to stay, if you like, in your diary. You needed us every year and you loved our product and you became used to it. So it became one of those, I don't know, probably one of the greatest products we ever did and, and sold many, many tens of thousands of them, if not hundreds of thousands. So that sort of product then, as the brand matured through the 80s and we opened shops and franchises around the world, gave us the franchise shop gave us the ability to move out of Paris where we had a little tiny one. We realized cash flow wise, we couldn't possibly afford to open a shop in Stockholm or Sweden. So we went to our best boutique customers and said, hey guys, you've seen Paris. Would you like to open one of these? And Stockholm were amazing. They almost came to me first, said, Roger, I've seen what you've done in Paris. Can I open one? And then Amsterdam came along and said the same and off we went. And so step by step around the world, we were opening Mulberry shops financed by third parties but we would design the shop. They'd add a little bit of Scandinavian touch to it. They then attracted their customers who they already had through their boutiques. And it gave us a wonderful entree straight into each of those markets, but with somebody who really knew their retail scene, had the social setup already there. And we finally did that in Japan. And we then went on to open about 12 shops through Japan. Um, and that really gave us the growth of the world. We then hit the next world recession, 1990, and that was very painful again. But interestingly, something about having done one meant we sort of knew the second one was coming. It was the Gulf War coming up and we could see tensions. Americans were stopping traveling. It was getting very hairy. And then suddenly I remember we went to our favorite exhibition, Pret-a-Porter in Paris, and nobody was there. We went to our favorite restaurant on the Friday night. We'd take the team in, we'd, we'd pick a favorite, and nobody was in the restaurant. You'd normally have to book a table months ahead to get in there. We were the only people the next morning at the exhibition. Nobody came. It was like a ghost town. And that was, that was shocking. So, again, we looked at well, where we were going to be and what were we going to do. Well, fortunately, we had our shops around the world. So we, had, we were owning the front end now of, of how to trade. Um, and we then said, what is it? And somebody actually came to us and said, look, could we buy the curtains on your changing room at the stand? And I said, well, no, <laughs> it's a curtain for our changing room. Yeah, but, you know, could I buy the fabric? And it was a lovely old Liberty's Carnation fabric. And I thought, you know, maybe it's time now for us to go into Mulberry Home. 
at the restaurants, nobody was going out to restaurants, everybody was cocooning at home, cocooning was the new word. And that was the time we said, okay, well now if we do Mulberry Home, and within a year we'd gone out to all these furniture makers, fabric designers, whatever it is, and said, look, this is the style we want to do, can you work with us? Now normally, Rob, you'd get, yeah, yeah, join the back of the queue, this is going to take two years, we're too busy, but now they had no business. So we were able to go into the best people like bakers, fabric makers, the best furniture, high-end guys, and say, look, here's my style. Could you make it? And within a year, we had made our Mulberry Home collection. We launched it at the best interior design show in London. And I always remember standing off the back of the stand and watching, and we created it around a theme of sort of largesse of Elizabethan England, but in contemporary fashion. And just watching the buyers come on the stand, I suddenly realized we'd managed to jump industry. And lots of those interior designers actually had been fashionisti and they'd stepped onto into interior design. And just hearing them say, oh, this is mom, this is exactly what I believe they would do. So we jumped industry and we were able to move on from there very successfully. We launched in Harvey Nichols. We took over the whole top floor of Harvey Nichols. Um, and we had... Uh, the most amazing opening and we had craftsmen making glass and furniture and everything and, and we'd managed to now make Marlborough into a lifestyle brand and that was a fantastical step um there were many people who said why don't you just stay doing what you do best which is handbags but i sort of knew your handbags always would be good but you had to keep exciting your your consumer with other products around or other feelings or styles and we did it in many ways through the 90s because we almost had matured as a brand in the 90s and whilst we were growing very strongly you could feel that there was Prada and Gucci coming Prada with their nylon bags Gucci was silver and black and I could actually feel that we'd lost just some of that front edge we'd had through the 70s and the 80s and I always remember a Hong Kong press girl saying to me Roger your brand is fantastic it must be at least 100 years old I'm going, do I look 100? <laughs> so, so, so the answer was, yes, we had done everything we should have done to create the brand, but now there was a danger we would become an old brand, which you could say in those days, Burberry was described as an old brand before it came back into its new incarnation. Jaeger was an old brand. And I was suddenly going, oh, no, is this going to be us? So we then headed into exciting areas like we did in fact we did a collection of bright nylon bags just like prada nobody wanted to buy them from us so that was not going to work so you know you have your place and you've got to work out of it so we this was a time when the city technology was all just bursting forth the mulberry planner was starting to look a little bit tired so i thought okay well could i do what is it? It's Palm Pilot. It's um, all these sort of electronic devices. I can do leather covers for those and I can market those in the city. So we did that. Off we shot again. So we became trendy through our technology leather covered items. And we sort of felt as we came up to the year 2000, we were still doing extremely well. We'd hit another bit of a rocky product with stock market. And that had been a fantastic launch. Um, but we had managed, we'd bought in venture capitalists in 1980 at the Gulf War recession to give us the extra finance for the business, found that we were paying them 30% rolled up interest rates. So we were suddenly in deep, deep cost. We were doing very well, but paying the banks. 
So we ended up saying, okay, let's go on the AIM stock market. So 96 went on the AIM stock market. And as I say, sold every share that's available, got the venture capitalists out very happily with all their money, didn't bring any extra money in for us. Big mistake, Roger. Um, then headed into the next big problem. Gordon Brown gave control of sterling to the Bank of England based on inflation. The pound soared to a super high. We were exporting in local currencies. So suddenly that meant that our margin dropped by 30%. And that meant, you know, when you, you're only ever going to make 10% at best in a shop in Germany, we were suddenly going from a 10% profit to a 20% loss. So we had a horrendous time then through the next year. We were trading extremely well, but we weren't making any money. So we had to make this very difficult decision as a British designer manufacturing base with three Queen's Awards for export. Should we now move internationally and make overseas? We had no choice. We moved to Turkey, to Italy, Italy too expensive. We moved to Turkey, then to Taiwan, to China. And we started manufacturing products that we knew we could make by exporting our leathers and so on to those places. We could make them at the same price that we needed to out of our own factory. So big step change for Mulberry. Um, we managed somehow to get through that. We moved 50% of production overseas, kept 50% here. And it's ironic that it was 96 that happened. And it was 2016 when we faced Brexit. And that whole, sorry, 2020, it was, it was best part of 20 years later. We realized that actually the pounds come back off that high. So it's 20 years the pounds stay high. So we had no choice but to do that. We did it. We did it successfully. But that was probably the mortal blow for me because I had to bring in extra capital. So we bought in a lady called Christina Ong, highly successful international businesswoman based in Singapore. She had the concessions for Armani, for Dolce Gabbana, um, lots of famous international brands. Up and down Bond Street, she probably owned 50% of all the stores. So she seemed an ideal partner to go into Singapore, and she had the rights for Armani in the States, Armani Exchange. So we did a deal. City thought I'd done an amazing deal. I had done. The one thing I'd forgotten was that actually her objective was to get control. Um, so we then spent a difficult two years for me where we tried to work with them, found it very difficult, but actually their objective was very simple. Get Roger out and then we can take control of the brand and we can inject the capital and take it forward. So long battle. Inevitably, I lost it in the end because one of my co-directors swapped sides at the last minute and suddenly in a day I was out of the business. Now, that was pretty horrendous. As you can imagine, I spent all my life building that brand and um, I look back at it and it was a very traumatic time for a couple of years. Um, my wife was a director in the business, so both of us were out and we struggled and we tried really hard to get control back. We had 44% of the shares. She had 42%, but we just couldn't find anybody who would take the risk of taking on this um, giant of an operation, Christina Ong, because she was too powerful. So nobody wanted to come in as a minority. Um, even though we had slightly more shares than she did, we, we, were, we didn't have over the 50% we needed to control the business. So harsh lesson. Um, however, Rob, if that lesson hadn't come, I would never have had the next 20 amazing years I've had. So um, probably I should shut up and let you ask a question or two. <laughs> and uh, actually, there's probably three or four questions that I would have asked that have been answered 
in that uh, lovely journey, taking us all, all the way through the decades. I really hope people listen carefully because you talked almost like about three cycles. And of course, you know, we're just coming out of the, the pandemic now. You could say that's some kind of cycle. So um, I'm going to move straight to a question uh, that I wanted to ask a bit later, which is how do you get through tough times? You taught that that was two traumatic years for you. It was tough. You got essentially moved out of your own business and brand. People in recent times have gone through tough times in the lockdown, companies closing, you know, a lack of social connection, fear. How do you, Roger, get yourself through tough times? What can I say? I think firstly, before we hit COVID, I think the fashion industry particularly, because remember we have Kilvercourt Designer Village on the one side and we have Sharp and Park on the other side as our two businesses. And we'd done Kilvercourt as a business that really was going to take designer, bring it into environment with food, with garden, with cafe, restaurant, um, and try and make it a destination just outside Shepton Mallet in Somerset, somewhere where people could come and have a day out and enjoy excitement and change their favorite designer brands at a price. You know, so we were looking at regeneration in that sense and old Victorian buildings. And that was the beginning, I think, of what one might call repurposing or regeneration or sustainability. And that was back in 2008. We started it. 2011, we developed it through into fashion and so on. So but go back to, to two years ago, two and a half years ago, fashion was in problem. It had lost its way. Um, sustainability was starting to become an issue food and music perhaps had become slightly more important that iconic handbag wasn't perhaps the most necessary thing to have and whilst it still remains you know that right iconic iconic handbag is still super important it now in my mind has moved right from the center stage so as we came into this period we could see that um what we were doing on the sharp and park side which was the food side and the organic food side and everything we'd done over the last 15 years on this side was going to become really important. And I think it must have been, well, it has been so difficult for all of us to see how do we survive this extraordinary period because you've got death and destruction all around you and almost it's, it's the wrong thing to be thinking of how do we survive because everybody's going through such trauma. But actually, it is survival, and ultimately, it will be survival of the lucky, survival of the fittest, and those people who are probably in the right place. And I'd like to think with both those businesses, subject to closure and everything else that went on, um, we were in the right place to probably thrive as we came out. So Sharp and Park, um, we grow spelt here. We've now got 20 farmers around the country growing for us. And we have walnuts, we have our red deer. So we're a mixed economy organic farm. We don't use pesticides, we don't use chemicals. Um, we planted 4,000 trees. We really are so lucky to live where we are. So I think the first thing was, Rob, in answer to your question, we live in an amazing place. So, and we've restored what was an old rundown dairy farm into what would have originally been a 1500s deer park. Um, and there's been agriculture here for tens of thousands of years, I would guess. So I think returning, as we started Sharpen Park, what we tried to do was look at the history and say, could we recreate um, a mixed economy of farm? It's only 300 acres, which in agricultural terms is quite small. 
But could we actually do it so that we had sheep, cattle, crops, rotate the land around, manure, if you like, simplistically onto the land that will grow crops? So it's got its nitrogen, it's going to grow. Now, that was a very basic first step. Since then, we've learned an enormous amount about soil structure, the microbiome and the, you know, the whole micro part of soil and how vital that is for all of us, not just the big iron, whatever it is, the tiny weeny little bits of bits in the soil that you need as part of your mixed diet coming up through the cereal plant into your mouth through the food you eat. So we've been on a very different new journey for the last 10, 15 years. And I think us coming in from our perspective to COVID, we it went berserk. Literally, we were making 24 hours a day flour to go into the market to make bread. I learned properly how to make sourdough, um, making one or two sourdoughs every week, apart from everything else I was doing. So getting your hands dirty, doing the washing up, if you like, and really understanding that now it doesn't matter how grand we've all been, what we've all done. Actually, this is now about a time when you've got to do it yourself. You've got to really be prepared to take responsibility and do everything that you're expecting somebody else to do for you and drive the team that way so you can hit the highs and make it happen. So we've come out of this 18 months in extremely strong form and we're about to launch our first spelt drink, um, which we'll do in September. And we've been doing that for 18 months, sort of gradually nurturing and bring it to market. So that's really exciting. At Kilver Court, we've been closed for two thirds of the year. That's hurt massively. Um, but equally, we came out in April trading only five days a week, but we've been trading at something like 20% above what we were doing at 19, 2019 on seven days. So how long that'll last? Don't know. What's this new world like? Don't know. Um, but just keep adapting, keep moving and keep flowing and keep talking. <laughs> Thank you, Roger. I've got one more question before we go into a quick fire round, which I hope you'll find fun. Um, we've got maybe 10 quick fire questions. Um, but I was taking some notes as you were talking through the journey of Mulberry. And, you know, you've had injection of family money. Then you've had injection of VC money. Then you've, um, you know, floated on the AIM market. And then you had your issues with someone taking a controlling ownership. So what is it like the difference between running your company yourself, self-funded, if you like, bootstrapping, they call it, and then having the responsibility of the cash injections and the, the shareholders and the people who've loaned you the money, they have a say now. And I'm going to get, this is a selfish question, Roger, I'll tell you why. We've always bootstrapped 50-50 shareholding between me and my business partner, have been for nearly 15 years now. Our growth's been good, but could we have been bigger had we had, um, you know, VC money or been backed or, you know, raised, um, sh you know, share capital, debt or equity? And I don't know the right answer. And so could you give us some sort of um, fours and against of both? <laughs> Every circumstance is obviously totally different. Um... I think if you think of the times we bought in capital, it was first one was co-director. We were going through a tough cash flow time. He injected a tiny bit of capital, but he also bought a bit of confidence to the business because of his gravitas, finance director. Second time was VCs, sold 25% of the business. Third time was AIM stock market, just cleared that through. 
didn't raise extra finance, should have done. Fourth time was Christina Ong lost the business. Now, I think every time you look at it, you probably as the founder and the creator, the entrepreneur, you look to see how do I maintain control, which is really where you're coming from, Rob. And the answer is, I think when you step probably into that 40% area or more, you have to actually accept I'm doing this for the good of the business. I may not be there. I may not be in control. But you're saying there's an opportunity for the business and the team within it, and then subsequently the shareholders. You, are, you have created that opportunity. You've created the platform for it to fly. You then cannot know whether you're going to remain a part of that or not. And I think if you take that route and you've created it well enough, I mean, I'm still very proud to see the Marlboro brand is still there. I would like to think that it could be because I created something very special that they have utilized from time to time, different elements of, of what I created and the team that was with me at the time. Um, so I think that's the way I would look at it. I, I would say that if there is an opportunity that is so great for the business, you've either got to decide, am I going to grasp that opportunity by bringing in the finance to make it happen? Or am I going to just quietly plod through? Now, if I think of the Mulberry Times, when we bought in Christine Ong was 2000. It was just when the Gucci forward Prada silver black spaceship rocket had just about come back to Earth. And everybody looked back into the 19th, the 20th century and said, OK, what were those great moments we had rather than what's going to happen in the future? So I knew Mulberry was poised to absolutely fly. So there was no question in my mind it was the right thing to do. I don't think I fully appreciate at the time that how painful it could be. But equally, I now know that. <laughs> so I would say if you're looking at saying, where do you go forward, grasp the opportunity for the business or, you know, stay doing this. But that's not my attitude. My attitude is try and find the way to move forward, but be prepared to accept if you don't make the right choices with your investors or your partners or whatever it might be, be ready for it to go wrong for you personally. And I think as long as you take that attitude and you think between you, you and I, how many people we've employed over our lives and how many people have been absolute stars and team members and we've gone far, and then how many has gone wrong for some reason? Our personalities don't work together different team ethics or whatever. It doesn't mean they don't work hard, but actually they're coming from a different place. You can make the same mistakes with your investors as you would do with em employees. And it can be nobody set out to do that, but actually the chemistry is wrong. Thank you, Roger. What a great answer. Thank you, Rob. What are you going to do? Um, <laughs> I'm going to carry on trying to grow the business as much as I can without external shareholders or VC money because I feel like I've still got more I can bring and I feel like I can still take it to the global stage more than just the national stage and I feel I'm not yet ready to relinquish control but I'm 42 Roger and when I get to 50 I might change my mind so I'm going to stay open and if someone comes with a big check I'm <laughs> I'm going to have a smile on my face and, um, yeah, never say never. But you see, it's quite complicated structure we have. But 
my business partner and I own about 1,200 rental units um, that we own, co-own and manage across three different property companies. And we have a property training business as well. So we get a lot of benefit from some of our companies, like we get 5% management charge instead of 12%. And one of our companies manages all of our properties. And we have an LLP and I have a Lamborghini and a Ferrari and an Ariel Atom and a Porsche all run through that LLP as a, a benefit, if you like, a tax saving. So if external shareholders came in, they're going to want to clean all that up. They're going to want me to buy, pay for all of that post-tax, which is going to cost me high six figures a year extra. So I've got to get let, let go of all those benefits. Um, so we've got, all right, we're, we're a small to medium sized business, but it's also quite lifestyle-y. Um, I get to do this in my spare time in the company. I mean, I'm in the company studio and what's Rob doing? Why is he interviewing Roger from Mulberry? Shouldn't he be, you know, hitting our KPIs? So I have that freedom, but I do know we could have grown quicker and bigger. Um, but no regrets, Roger. No regrets. Never have regrets, Rob. It's, it's always got to be looking forward. Amen. Right. Thank you. Woo. Put me on the spot. Love it. So we're going to do a quick fire now, Roger. And, um, maybe guideline about 15 second answer per question. That's kind of the way they've been set up. Um, but of course, you know, if you want to go on a bit longer, that's of course your choice. So traditional or self-education and why? Self-education, because that way you can learn everything you like from history or from forwards or from colleagues or whatever. Your greatest career high? Uh, winning the Porto Grand Prix in my Alfa Romeo P3. Do you still have that, by the way? Sadly not, no. <laughs> As an aside, Roger, I, I'm sitting here somewhat bruised. Um, I had a nice Richard Meal watch in my collection, a couple of nice Odomar Piguet and Patek Philippe's and... I sold them. I made margin. I made good money on them. They have gone up hundreds of thousands of pounds since. <laughs> That's a terrible timing. Um, what's your greatest car of all time? Probably the car I had. That one, the Alfa P3 was the dream car, the fastest car I'd ever driven. One Grand Prix all over Europe. Um, dream car to drive. You could drive on opposite lock and 100 miles an hour around the corners at Dijon. Um, absolute dream, won the Brighton Speed Trials in it. But actually, funnily enough, I would go to the one before that. It was an Alfa Romeo 8C Spider, two-seater, 1933. Um, I think came second at Le Mans in 1934. Was a fantastic car. We completely rebuilt, so enjoyed that building process of bringing it back to market. Then did the Mila Melia, that thousand mile road race around Italy, which I've done a few times. And Monty, my wife came with me and we had ITV following us as they then were. We had the Daily Telegraph with us and we set out and we, we literally had the most amazing experience of a thousand miles around Italy with millions of people watching. And uh, that was a truly amazing experience. And we very nearly killed a dog going under a bridge that we went under, under this underpass bridge and the dog decided to go into it at the same time as us. And we had a police bike in front of us encouraging us to go ever faster. And it was, is the dog going to come out? And we, we came out faster than the dog did, obviously, but the dog did come out. <laughs> so that was an exciting moment. Uh, your career low, Roger. Wow. Well, there have been many. I think I always say when you're creating a brand and you're an entrepreneur, you're probably like a submarine. You spend most of the time underwater and you occasionally come up for air. 
be that financially or, or in every other, because you commit everything, your money, your soul, your teams, your family are all dragged into this exciting race with you. And I've been so lucky with my family and my teams around me who've, who've made it possible. Um, the lows would have been, you know, when you just don't know whether you're going to come out and it could have been that dreadful time in 7980. Um yeah, I think there are times when you think you know you can find your way out, but you don't actually know, and those are the lowest, and there'll be many of those, but um, equally the highs are fantastical. <laughs> Fashion or cars, you can only choose one in your life, and why? Oh, that's a difficult one. Um, <laughs> inevitably cars, I think, because I'm just... I'm. I just love driving, and fashion to me, I probably would have said fashion... 20 years ago, because it's made made my life. Um, but cars, I've just had the most incredible time with and those experiences of racing and just driving. I just love driving. And fashion to me doesn't have the same importance in my life today that it did 20 years ago. Sure. Just a quick aside. I have an aerial atom in my garage. Have you ever driven one of those? No, no. It sounds quite weird and amazing. <laughs> Yeah, it doesn't. It's a cage, basically. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Have a look at one of those. I think you'll you'll handle that well. <laughs> I'm driving um, at the moment, loving it, a little mini electric mini. And uh, those are great fun. Try doing opposite lock in electric mini. You shouldn't really try <laughs> it, but you, it's good fun. <laughs> OK, Prada or Gucci? You can only pick one and why? Prada. Prada, without question. Very, very clever design team. Um, I think great, great style. Gucci, of course, is a fantastic brand, but I think Prada has that combination of understatement and yet serious statement, whereas Gucci is just, I am a big statement. The best advice you ever remember receiving? Wow. Um, probably don't do it <laughs> and then doing it. <laughs> the worst advice you ever remember receiving? Um probably that stock market launch where we should have taken some money out. That would have made all the difference to, to Mulberry. But, you know, hey, that was then. When you say taken money out, can you just explain what you should have done? You mean? So when we went on the stock market, we had 25% shareholding of our VCs, great group of VCs, but they were looking to exit with their five-year profit, which they got. What we should have done, because we were so far oversubscribed, we should have just sold 5% extra and taken that cash into the business. And then we would have had that extra balance we'd have needed to see through that difficult two years where the pound did that and, and nothing we could do about it. Do you have a biggest regret? Not really, no. No, I think, um, yeah, no, I've got one sad, sad one. That my, my dad died when I was just about to do two big races that I never did. And I, again, it's, it's um, sad rather than regret. Um, one was the Targa Floria with the P3, which would have been staggering driving around the whole of Sicily. Um, and then the second one would have been um, Le Mans. I was due to do Le Mans, and he just died in that period. And actually, Dad was probably saying, Roger, these are two that are possibly slightly more dangerous than the other ones you've done, and actually, maybe it's a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> Is there something that you believe strongly, Roger, that many people you know don't believe or disagree with you on? I think probably because I'm a, both a planner, so I like to know my risks ahead, but probably to me those risks 
are manageable, whereas to other people they are invisible and therefore very dangerous. So I'm prepared to take what must seem to other people incredible risks, whereas to me they're very planned and very possible. So that would probably be where other people in family or team might say, look, that's just too dangerous, don't do it. It doesn't mean personally racing, it may be business decisions or whatever, but that's what I spent my life doing, putting myself in harm's way, but hopefully with enough protection around me for me to make that opportunity work. doesn't always work, but it usually does work. And that's what I think would probably make the difference between what I might be thinking and what they might be thinking. Is there anything you've changed your mind on that you used to believe strongly, but you've you turned? Oh, probably so many things. Yeah, I think knowledge, as we've all learned in this COVID period, has been so full frontal in everything we've done. And I think, you know, I now wouldn't race my P3 because to me, using that much fuel to go around and around in circles is completely crazy. Um, it's just not ethically what I should be doing now. Um, I was always a bit worried. I was going through the last stages of my career and starting Sharp and Park up, and I'd be racing my P3 around the circuit, and I'm just going, hmm, okay, now, how does this sit in sustainability terms and so on? And um, so, actually, I was just incredibly lucky to live through those areas where I could do those things. Now I have different knowledge, so I now have to look at things totally differently. So I think we, we as... There's never been a time ever before where we have information in front of us, which we know sustainably we must grasp. And I think having my son Cameron with his bottle top charity and his, his campaigns with the United Nations to really try and make us look at ocean plastic and, and all of these different poverty, et cetera, um, we're fully involved in that process and started the charity with him. So I think, if you like, that now means that I would be much more careful in certain considerations and areas than I would have ever been before. Um, but I wouldn't have known then the things I was doing were wrong. I always remember we took the P, not the P3, the previous Alpha, to we drove it up the Klausen Pass in Switzerland. It was the first time that race had been done, a 26-kilometre race, and we had BBC Top Gear with us on that. And it was the most exciting experience ever. We drove the cars from England down to Switzerland, had taken over a hotel and it was the mulberry team of four alphas and including the p3 that i then bought later in my life and we raced them practiced up this mountain and we parked outside the hotel and came back and i remember a swiss granny hitting the back of the alpha with a stick Go, what are you doing and it was because the exhaust was spatting over some flowers and they'd had no racing in switzerland since um, 50s when it was a really bad accident and so to her this was sacrilege and for us we go well, what on earth are you doing now i understand but then i didn't hmm. is there one thing that's wrong with the world that you'd like to change roger well i i recognize i'm not big enough to change anything in the world i think that's the first thing to say the second thing is i think it's you, you can talk to people and there's always a balance between preaching to people and giving your opinion. I really hope I don't preach because I, I think everybody has their own box. Although I think now more than ever, um, I've been through that period where we were, you know, I employ girls in Somerset who hadn't even been 10 miles to the local town when we started. 
and they're in their 30s to it's incredible that now sounds to you know creating a global brand with mulberry where we move from country to country to trying to have a global image everywhere the same and now we've come back to individual again which i think actually is a really good thing because i think that global commercialization in in the wider sense of you have the same jacket worn in japan or whatever it is is all wrong i think you want the natural characteristics to come out if there was one person on the planet alive that you would stop everything you're doing to see interviewed on this show the disruptive entrepreneur who would it be um i think it would be this might sound a really silly one i think it would be the queen because i think she's lived through and the queen able to speak without restriction because i think she's lived through such an extraordinary period of time her experience and how she would have changed her viewpoint think of her bad times her good times all of those things she's had to to cope with and the family rifts and problems and wow what a what a life she's led and i must get rid of this fly in here um so i think bizarrely it would be her but with with no no holds barred from her side <laughs> well if i get her on the show i'll let you know roger <laughs> thank you very much <laughs> um two more uh, so the whole fast fashion, you know, the H&M, the Primark, what's your view on that? Um, I think it's a thing of the past. And I think that our whole knowledge on sustainability now means they must change massively. Um, it, it's really not what we need. Now, if they can do that adaption and do it positively for people who are working for them around the world, good luck to them. And I hope the world is helping them make those changes as we speak. This um, podcast is called The Disruptive Entrepreneur. What does the word disruptive mean to you, Roger? It means forcing change, but not necessarily by doing it with aggression, by presenting situations and opinions and knowledge that means that knowledge means you must look at your opinion and, if necessary, change it. And where can we follow you? Where can we see what you're up to, the companies that you're running, the things that you're doing? Well, probably my absolute focus at the moment is Sharp and Park, first and foremost. My son, Freddie, is running Kill the Court. So I'm leaving him more to handle the fashion side of things, but he's doing it very well. Um, I just, with Sharp and Park, we're just right at the front of this food change revolution. Should it be meat? Should it be plant? How are we growing it? How are we feeding it? How do we do it organically? And that is going to be feeding us all as we take that knowledge forward over the next period of time. So I'm really excited to be in that zone. And I hope my spelt drink will be hitting the market soon. And um, that's what I'm really excited about at the moment. Thank you, Roger. What's the drink going to be called so we can keep an eye out for it? We've got spelt barista, which is for your latte and your coffee. And then we've got naked oat and spelt, which is your drink for your cereals and to drink it out of the carton. Roger, I've had a lot of fun and um, thank you for sharing all your experience. Uh, it's been a challenging time in business. So to hear you share your experience of the cycles that you've had and how you've come through them, it's definitely been very inspiring to me. So thank you very much. Rob, it's been a treat to talk to you again. And I look forward to hearing what happens when you're 50. <laughs> Might come to you for some money, Roger. <laughs> Let's hope I've still got some. Yeah. Thanks, Roger. Take care. Hey, it's Rob again, and I need to own up to something. Entrepreneurs don't celebrate enough. I bet you don't. I know I don't. And we went through the five-year anniversary of The Disruptive Entrepreneur, which is a massive achievement. 
and the 600th episode, which again, how many podcasts have done 600 episodes and we didn't even celebrate. So I want to celebrate the 600th episode and the five year anniversary with you. We have something new and special that I think you're going to love. Now, many of you who listen, you're on my Facebook supporter program. You get 10 pieces of content with me as a bonus over and above what the general public get. We have supporter only meetups, socials, dinners. I do ask me anythings every sort of two weeks or so live. We do make cash and social media challenges. You get discounts at You get to come to events and you get premium ticket upgrades and so much more. But what I've done to celebrate the five-year anniversary, the 600th episode, is actually created a decentralized platform called Rob.team. Many of you don't use Facebook. We're in a a more modern decentralized age now. So if you go right now to Rob.team, www.rob.team, you can join my supporter and Rob.team program. You can choose whether you enroll on Facebook or the non-native decentralized platform that I've built specially for you. And for just five pounds or $5 a month, cancel any time. You get 10 premium pieces of content from me you don't get anywhere else, deep dive content. You get supporter and team only meetups, socials and dinners throughout the year. A two weekly Ask Me Anything Live that I don't do in any public situation anymore. We do seven day challenges about five times a year make cash challenges, social media challenges. You get premium ticket upgrades, special discounts. I have um, three Facebook account managers. We often have Zoom meetings with them and then we update you sort of from the horse's mouth live um, what they shared with us. Um, Whenever we do events and webinars, we never do replays or recordings. But as a supporter and team member, you get those free. You get an extra 10% discount off any of my trainings. And get this. If you're one of the first 60, I can't do 600, you'll see why. Then I'm actually going to do a 15-minute one-to-one personal call with you. And if you're one of the first 256, I've just set up a brand new Rob.team WhatsApp group where you'll get my mobile number and, you know, we can share strategies and tactics together. So go right now to www.rob.team. That's www.rob.team. First 50 get a 15 minute one-to-one call with me. Um, I'm going to do that after your first month subscription. And I, you know, it's going to take me a bit of time to do that, but I'll do it. I'll, I'm a man of my word. And the first 256, you get into the Rob.team supporters only WhatsApp group. There's loads of bonuses in there. This program has been running for two years. My six stage, seven figure launch formula, which was a paid for course, it's in there. How to write a best-selling book course is in there. PAVA and social media manager and brand manager documents and job descriptions are in there. Marketing KPIs documents are in there. How to dramatically increase your fees. The book I'm writing, the up-to-date version is in there. There's so much content. It's only £5 or $5 a month. Uh, And I'm adding this new platform, Rob.team, to celebrate the fifth year anniversary and the 600 episodes. And first 60, 15 minute one-to-one call with me. First 256, get into the um, exclusive WhatsApp group. So be quick, go now, because we have millions of subscribers and downloads and views a week now for the Disruptive Entrepreneur Show across all platforms. So see you there at www.rob.team. Go now.